good morning. Uh, my name is John Lee and I'm a non-resident senior fellow and adjunct professor at the United States Studies Centre and a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute in uh, Washington. Uh, welcome to this webinar on the role of United States innovation in securing Australia's economic future, uh, the title of which will come from a report by Jared Monsheen, who's a senior advisor at the United States Study Centre. Our report will be released next for Thursday. Uh, back in 2017, Jared released an enormously influential report entitled uh, indispensable economic partners, the US-Australia investment relationship. Uh, the upcoming report builds on this, uh, but more of that later. Now to set the scene, let me present uh, two largely unquestioned pieces of common wisdom, which you'll hear if you spend any time in Australia. And I think Jared's work really takes on these two bits of common wisdom head on. The first is that the United States is our most important security partner, but China is our most important economic partner. Every poll of Australians have a majority believing that this is the uncontested reality. Second, there is a common wisdom that Australia should win the international prize for economic management and resilience. We are the miracle economy. Since 1991, we have had 28 years of consecutive economic growth, and it would have been a 29th year but for the COVID-19 pandemic. Australia weathered the dot-com bubble and, and the bubble bursting. We weathered the global financial crisis and a 2015 Chinese economic slowdown. Many believe we've conquered the so-called Dutch disease, that is the heavy reliance on a number of small or a small number of sectors such as commodities and minerals, uh, and, and that this notion would spell doom for the economy. Well, it doesn't seem to have done that. So what's not to like about the Australian economy? Well, I think there are some sober messages that we need to heed, and this provides some of the background for Jared's upcoming report, uh, which speaks about the importance of innovation and how Australia is going on this account it talks about the role of the United States in upscaling the Australian economy, and it talks about where we need to go from here. Now, we will then have a discussion uh, on these and other issues with a fantastic group of panelists. Uh, they are fantastic because they are drawn from quite a few different job descriptions, but all are at the top of the field. Now, to those who have registered, uh, I am monitoring the questions and I will work them in to the extent that I can. So please keep sending them in if you have them. So let's get to the panel. Uh, Jared Monsheen is a senior advisor uh, at the centre and he works ac across all three of the centre's program, programs, that is foreign policy and defence, trade and investment and innovation and entrepreneurship. And his report next Thursday cuts across all those three areas. Uh, his analysis has appeared in major outlets in US, in Europe, in Asia and Australia. He was previously with Bloomberg in Washington DC and also the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, James Caruso is known to all Australians in government and extremely highly regarded by all of us. Uh, if you ask anyone in Australia from officials in departments to the Prime Minister, they will have nothing but praise for the work that Jim did while he was in Canberra. Uh, he has been at the forefront of economic diplomacy in the Asia Pacific for most of his career. Uh, now the managing director of the Bao Group Asia Pacific in Singapore, uh, he was the senior foreign policy advisor to the US Indo-Pacific Command in Hawaii. And before that, the deputy chief mission uh, and charging affairs at the US Embassy in Canberra. Alex Lynch manages government affairs and public policy for Google in Australia, where he's responsible for helping Australia adapt to a digital world economy, which is no small task. Uh, Alex has a decade of experience in strategic reputation and crisis management, uh, and prior to joining the private sector, worked for the New Zealand government on national security issues. And Dr. Sarah Pearson is the Innovation Lead and Deputy Director General Innovation of the Department of State, of Department of State Development, Tourism and Innovation in Queensland, which means Sarah is in charge of policies to enhance Queensland innovation. 
Uh, before that, she was Chief Scientist and Chief Information Officer at the Commonwealth Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, founding CEO of the CBR Innovation Network. Uh, she was at the University of Newcastle. She was CEO of ANU Enterprise. She was a management consultant with McKinsey and Company. And if that isn't enough, she was a tenured physics academic at the University of New England. Uh, let me now invite Jared to introduce some key points and arguments uh, from his report, and then we'll, we'll have a conversation with the panelists uh, after Jared's uh, introductory remarks. So Jared, could I please hand to you? Thanks so much, John. And uh, it's an honor to have such a distinguished panel here today. I really appreciate the time that they, as well as the attendees, uh, took to be here today. Um, so over the next few minutes, I'm just going to give you a preview of my report. This is the first time that I'm sharing these findings publicly. Um, the keyword is preview. We're releasing this on Thursday, as John mentioned. And if you subscribe to the U.S. Study Center uh, on, on our website, uscc.edu.au, you'll be the first to get the full thing when it is released. Um, as John mentioned, the genesis of my work on this is a report I came out with three years ago, actually yesterday, is uh, this, the Indispensable Economic Partners. Um, I, uh, I, as John mentioned, I was at Bloomberg in DC and the CEO of the US Study Center, Simon Jackman, brought me out here to, to help with this report. And um, it was, I think, pretty, pretty, it went well. It was launched in Canberra with uh, then Finance Minister Scott Morrison. I had Jim Caruso, who's then acting ambassador uh, from the US to Australia. We had launch events in Sydney uh, with Alex, who's also here today. We had launch events in Melbourne, Adelaide, Brisbane. It was it went really well. And I think it had a particularly good impact because it, it as John said, sort of flew in the face of conventional wisdom about the US uh, role in Australia. And that is today and for some decades now, the US is the largest foreign investor in Australia and the largest destination of Australian investment overseas. But as impactful as that report was, I think I wanted, as soon as I finished it, I wanted to do more because the more I, I delved into the data, the more I saw that there, there needed to be more, more of a follow-up. There needed to, to be a bit of a better understanding of that story. So if I could just start with the slide deck, Mara. What I want to start with first is the story of the cumulative value. What you see here on this slide deck is how the U.S. is, like I said three years ago, the largest investor into Australia. Um, the U cumulatively, U.S. firms spend more, employ more, sell more, buy more, and contribute more to Australia's GDP than firms from any in, uh, in, in, in Australia than firms from any other country. You'll see here that the U.K. is second, but I think the chart makes clear that's not even a close second. Compared to the second place UK, there are twice as many US firms in Australia. There are twice as many employees of US firms in Australia. US firms own more than three times as much in assets. US firms spend more than three times as much on capital expenditures. And they add twice as much to the Australian economy, which you see in industry value add on the far right. Now, I think cumulatively, just like three years ago, this is a remarkable story. But what I want to, to show you today and in this report is that it's not just a cumulative story. I think that story's already been told. And as much as I think there could be more messaging on that story, um, which I think we proved just last month when we found that 71% of Australians still think that China is the number one investor uh, into Australia, which is clearly not correct. I think what I want to do today is focus more on the quality, not just the, uh, the, the cumulative and the quantity. And so if I could go to the next slide. Um, what, I what I want to do here is talk about that quality and why that quality is important. The exact future of the global economy is unknown. We don't know exactly what's going to be, but we do know general, a general idea of the direction where it's headed. Services are going to be more important. Value creation will be tied to knowledge intensive and automated processes and skills and firms and individuals will need flexibility and resilience. And I think the shorthand term for all of this is that you need to be more countries and companies and individuals will need to be more innovative. And these global shifts are, I think, most acutely visible in the digital transformation of everything from shopping to media consumption and the need for, for flexibility and resilience but particularly amid strategic competition between the US and China. They've, all of these shifts have been accelerated by the global pandemic. 
So here is that quality that I'm talking about. This slide here tells you how the average firm, an average employee, how they compare at a US firm versus an Australian firm versus a foreign firm that is not American. The average employee of the US firm in Australia contrib contributes three times as much to Australia's GDP as the average employee of an Australian-owned firm, and 22% more than the average employee of a foreign-owned firm that is not US-owned. And in terms of wages, you can see the significant discrepancy between uh, a US firm versus a Australian firm, $20,000 more and $2,000 more per year than a non-US owned firm. And so what, what I think is beyond this is what I find interesting is the US investment is not just cumulative, it's also quality, as you can see here, but it's also in interesting sectors that are the most relevant to Australia's future economy. So I found that out of 19 sectors of Australia's economy, US is the number one investor in 14 of them. So 14 out of 19 sectors, the US is the number one foreign investor into Australia. And it is th those specific sectors that I think are particularly interesting. So what are they? US-owned firms in manufacturing account for 40,500 40, Australian jobs. 40,500 Australian jobs, or about 5% of all workers in the entire industry across Australia. And that's 11% of, and they make up 11% of the entire industry's contribution to GDP. Then you have information, media, and telecommunications. That that's another sector. That includes IBM, Google. Um, these firms, US owned firms in Australia, account for, in this sector, account for 13,000 Australian jobs, or 10% of all workers in the entire industry across the country. And that's, they also account for 6% of Australia's GDP. Then, third most uh, notable sector that I want to talk about is professional, scientific, and technical services. That's everyone from Amgen, a, a pharmaceutical and biotech company, to Cook Medical Group, which, which develops uh, medical uh, technologies and innovations. US-owned firms in Australia account for 55,800 jobs in this sector, 6% of all workers in the entire industry across Australia. And, or, and they also account for 10% of the entire industry's contribution to GDP. In all three of these sectors, U.S. firms are not only the largest investors, but no other country's investors and investments are even half the size of the U.S. investment footprint. So if I could go to the next slide, I'll talk about why is this relevant. I think this is a bit of a snapshot as to why. Now, we all hear about research and development. R&D is not the sole measure of innovation, but it certainly is a good one to start with. And the, the most innovative economies in the world, Israel, Germany, Korea, and the US, they all have higher R&D spending as a percentage of GDP than the US. And they also have all increased their R&D spending in recent years. Australia stands alone in seeing its R&D spending decrease in every year of the last decade. And other, other uh, uh, clear examples of how Australia is, is falling in this area is that of the Global Innovation Index, Australia has fallen out of the top 20 in the last few years. In global rankings of economic complexity, a measure often correlated with future economic growth, Australia ranks 87th in the world, falling behind countries like Uzbekistan, Botswana, Guatemala. And then uh, just uh, recently, a think tank in the UK determined that Australia is the single most economically reliant country on China out of the five eyes group, that is the US, UK, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. And this is definitely a challenge to economic resilience when Australia's top trading partner has increased its use of economic coercion. And I think this is but one slide showing that Australia is moving and has been moving for, in the wrong direction for some time and away from global trends. But however, the good news is that uh, Australia's trade investment with the US has continued to push Australia in a more future-oriented uh, uh, area. And uh, U.S. firms, you see here, Australia has been decreasing. U.S. firms in Australia have spent more than a billion dollars on R&D in Australia since 2009. For context, the entire Australian government spent $10 billion uh, just last year. And last year, the U.S. firms spent $1.2 billion Australian dollars on R&D. If I could go to the next slide. Um, so I've spoken and published about the Australian uh, investment relationship with the US. But one thing I want to talk about is services. Service, services is the future global economy. As I said in the beginning, that is where the global economy is shifting. And today, uh, US Australian services trade is 27% greater 
uh, then Australia's second largest services trading partner, China. And we hear in Australia about how key foreign students are, but to from China in particular to Australia's uh, GDP. And they are, but you can still see that the services to a trade between the US and Australia is still larger than Australia. And this is, you can see in, or if you look at global trends, services is increasing at a faster rate than goods. So the trade of services is faster and increasing faster than the trade of goods. And Australia is actually uh, along, going along global trends in this uh, area and their services trade has increased at 6.5% 6, 6 over the last five years, whereas goods trade has increased at 4.5% over the last five years. And to give you an idea of just how critical services is, they account for 70% of Australia's GDP today. Now, if I could go to the next slide. So the question is, how does Australia's services trade with the US compare to its trade with other countries, including China, as well as globally? I think this, uh, these three pie charts are pretty clear. The US is a more diversified uh, trading partner than China in services, and that then where Australia is trading in general. US services trade with Australia has foreign students, it has tourism, as you see in the pink here, but it also has three other key areas, including intellectual property charges, the use of patents, trademarks, copyrights, has other business services, which is R&D services, professional and management consulting services, trade-related services. It also has telecommunications, computer, and information services. For more than 20 years, Australia's trade in these three key service areas has been larger from the US than anywhere else, with the US than anywhere else. And in 27, 2018, Australia exported uh, a total of, uh, sorry, Australian exports of intellectual property to the US grew 11% from the prior year, totaling more than $400 million, and more than five times the size of the next largest destination, the UK. And it's similar with these other key sectors as well. Again, it is not just a cumulative story of being the top services partner. It is that quality story as well, where those trade and services are key to Australia's, the nature of those trade and services is key to Australia's future economic opening. So one thing that I should, I should note is that the future orientation of these ties go beyond trade and investment. Um, US-Australian collaboration in space predates the creation of NASA even, but it led to Australia hosting the largest number of NASA tracking stations outside of the US and enabling TV images of Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. It was, it was through Australian uh, uh, being involved in NASA's mission to the moon that we could actually see the, uh, the moon landing. And in 2019, more than half a century later, the Morrison government allocated recently $150 million to help Australian businesses get involved in the US mission to Mars. And Australia's well-known robotics and automated automation tech abilities in mining are expected to be integral to NASA's uh, current goal of, of extracting resources in space. And even beyond space, you have extensive collaboration and ties in medical research. Um, Australia uh, is the United States' second largest international collaborator in cancer research, only trailing Canada. And this is resulting in collaboration on world-renowned projects like the Cancer Moonshot, um, which you may have heard about. And then just this week, the US and Australia convened the Joint Commission meeting on science and frontier technologies uh, dialogue, and they talked about everything from AI, quantum information science to ocean exploration, mapping. And this, this involved high profile folks, involved the Australian Minister for Industry, Science and Technology, Karen Andrews, and involved uh, the Australian CSIRO. It also involved the White House Office um, uh, Policy Director for the Office of Science and Technology, the US Chief Technology Officer, the National Science Foundation. This is the top innovative leaders in uh, US and Australia. And these are industries that will determine the future. That's what I think is the main takeaway. And these dialogues between close friends and partners and their research and industry collaboration that will spin off of them, I think they offer Australia a bolstered role in the future economy and more complex, it's more complex than simple exports, more resilient than services like education and tourism. So with that, I'll throw it to John for a uh, conversation with our excellent panel. Thank, thank you, Jared. Um, you know, I, I was struck by one of the statistics in particular uh, in terms of value added. Um, US firm, 71.5 billion, I think the figure was. 
uh, Chinese firms, 4.7 billion. Um, Sarah, or perhaps Alex, maybe I can start with you. This bigger um, economic footprint by American firms in Australia, on any criteria you want, on a per employee basis, on a per firm basis, um, is that is that something you've observed um, in, in your dealings with the Australian economy? But probably a more important question is why? Why is it that US firms uh, add so much more disproportionately uh, than firms from other countries? So Sarah or Alex, happy for either one to chip in. Can I jump in and get, get started? And, and um, first of all, I'd like to say thanks for inviting me to be part of this. It's great to be having this conversation. I think now is, is absolutely the sweet spot time to be having it. You know, if you think about the global shifts you're talking about, Jared, there's a massive global shift going on right now. And, and I think that it's accelerating the need for innovation, um, but it's also accelerating the, uh, the desire for it. So our population are having to innovate, they're having to change, they're seeing that science is needed to get them through this pandemic. So I think we're living in a really, really fantastic time from that perspective. On the downside, obviously, there's the R&D, which is going to be have a very, very big shock hitting it financially. So we've got to make sure we take care of that, which brings us to the crux of you know collaborating with these uh, American firms, but also America beyond just the, just the firms. Really good to see the stat. I love that stat. Industry value added per firm, $35.12. Um, you know, great, much greater than anything that we have uh, for our own companies. And I think that says a lot. I think that's partly the sophistication of the American uh, companies that are domiciled over here. They, they come here with sophisticated products and services. And I think what's exciting is that they see the strong benefit uh, of the research that we have in Australia. Australia's research is globally renowned for being world-class um, across the board, but obviously there's some specific areas that it's very, very strong in. And I think that's what attracts uh, the, these companies to, to Australia. I mean, there's other policy levers as well, but I think it's absolutely that, that excellence. And it's been good to see more and more of them coming over here and setting up R&D entities. So I think of Lockheed Martin and it's Stella down in, in Melbourne, for instance, the Boeing research that happens up here in Queensland. It's really been great to see in the last few years, a lot more moving into that collaborative partnership R&D space rather than just coming over here and trying to sell, sell their services. So I think that's a really, really good move. You talked about the, the strong relationship around innovation. And I think the key there is that American companies are looking at, well, what will they collaborate on? You know, space and spatial massively growing. We've got some great expertise here in Australia. So seeing a lot more around that. You talked about AI, Jared, you know, obviously there's, there's a lot of uh, controversy around who's spending what money on, on AI and uh, it makes a big difference who is spending that money. So it's really good to see us having those conversations. So I think, Bring your companies from the US coming over here and partnering with us on that is really, really key. Um, I think what will be interesting will be about data. So uh, data is, I believe, the fastest growing commodity. Um, so, you know, you, you talked about IP trading, uh, which is good to see. I think that's partly a um, maturity in our university system, realizing that they can license offshore, so licensing to the US. So that's, that's uh, really fascinating. And from my perspective, that fits in with the data piece too. But I really want to see us doing a lot more around deep tech uh, and that trading and collaborating on deep tech. So I'm on the investment committee of Main Sequence Ventures, very proud of what we do there, building deep tech industries in Australia. I'd love to see a lot more collaboration by um, our, you know, the, the US and, and US companies on, the, on that deep tech here in Australia. And, uh, and the research, I think we've been doing quite a lot of that. We will have to do more and more collaboration not just from the, uh, you're talking about the companies that are over here, John, but it'll be much broader than that uh, because no one's going to have a lot of money for research. We're going to have to do a lot more collaborating. The SBIR was a, has been a fantastic opportunity for Australia. I know a lot of companies have commercialized in the US because of the SBIR in the US, and that's obviously collaborating with uh, US companies. But the, the MNCs here, uh, I think they are uh, becoming much more aware of opening up to ideas to take to market through their supply chains uh, and again i'd love to see us doing more that more more of that and i think there's, there's huge huge opportunities for that as well as some of the we were talking earlier before this uh, this this uh, webinar that it'd be good to see some people from the us and the us companies here in, in australia jumping out and setting up companies here so really contributing and being part of that 
that ecosystem. And I think that's something that uh, is certainly happening. And I'm sure Alex will talk a, a bit more about that. I know that you guys do a lot in terms of the ecosystem. But I, I think that the, the American countries, companies here in Australia are a big, big part of that ecosystem we're trying to build for, for success of innovation in, in Australia. Yeah. Um, from our perspective, I think it, it lends itself towards the economic diversity and industry makeup in the US. And so we have a lot of higher value-add industries appearing over there. And that's as a result of decades and decades of investment through uh, in science technology through DARPA and the semiconductor industry that slowly led to the evolution of these internet-based firms. Um, we do have, a, you're, you're sitting on top of a pyramid of lots of research and spending and innovative culture over time, including a large venture capital industry. So when you have a company like Google coming out to Australia, and we have now um, more than 700 people working in our computer science department here directly on R&D, and, and the Australian economy earns about you know, more than $330 million a year due to Google's R&D here um, directly, that means that you know those jobs because of the value that they're contributing to the companies because of the uh, the demand in which those employees are held you see them in attracting higher wages um, and it means we need to contribute as a company in australia that set up this engineering operation to university programs to the talent pipeline right from the school level through high school and university to make sure that we're getting high quality researchers and so that's one aspect you know a self-interested aspect of how we contribute to the evolution of the local technology industry. Um, but it also comes from uh, people who've worked at Google going out and working in other companies. For example, Canva, the chief technology officer um, of Canva was a formal Google engineer who decided to go out and work in another local firm. And it's those sorts of uh, relationships where people develop those really high level global skills. They can't get outside of a large company that's been operating these hyperscale computing areas and then go and take those skills to a local company that can really help to develop local industry. And I'm really positive about the um, the international trade and I think investment relationship developing in areas like defense and space technology. That's that's been given a very clear runway by the, by the government. But at the same time, you know, as a company, you've, you've, you'll look at the media. Um, we remain concerned about uh, particularly in the information technology space uh, at the moment, that it's a very hostile environment here. Australia's doing great things in digital trade. Uh, I think opening up great opportunities for services exports through the region. But unless we get the domestic policy settings right, we're going to continue to see what we're seeing at the moment, which is, you know, a continuing not only a slowing growth in um, fixed capital formation in ICT in Australia, but a, a continued slow, continual slowing of that growth. And we're already behind the OECD by about 30 something percent in terms of value captured from digitization. We are 50% behind the penetration average when it comes to investment and automation in terms of our public sector companies. And so the, the fact that these US industries, um, you know, Google and many, many other companies across a number of industries are coming in and making those R&D investments, making those higher value add investments in Australia that then transfer across the wider economy is, is hugely important. Alex, before I move on to the sort of broader macro aspects and policy aspects of this issue, um, let me just get to a, a question about the firm level. And of course, you're from Google. Uh, in 2019, BCG names Google as the most innovative company in the world, replacing Apple. Um, in terms of the work culture within Google, is there a particular emphasis on creativity and innovation, or is that just a byproduct of the things that you actually do? Um, I ask because, you know, in government departments, also in, in companies, you hear the word innovation a hundred times in strategic documents. Is that something that Google does or is it just something that results given the processes that you have? So it's both. It's structural. Uh, Gmail, for example, was a employee's what we call a 20% project where employees can spend 20% of their time on a project that they care about that may not be related to their everyday role, but which they are passionate about and think will make change. Um, so now Gmail, which has more than 2 billion users now, I believe, was someone's side hustle, essentially, from their main job at Google. And that that sort of idea that you know, we have a bunch of talented people who can who have great ideas and ideas come from the bottom of the company, not necessarily the top, is something that's fed into the culture of Google. It just means the more smart people you have thinking about creatively about how they might approach different problems, the more likely you are to find a solution to those problems. And that's that's philosophical. Um, but I think it, 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 it is in the nature of the industry that we're in, in terms of digital technology, um, and the fact that we're as a global economy transitioning through this period of digitization akin to the industrialization process. Um, that has advantages in terms of scale and reach, uh, has advantages in terms of not having to uh, 
um, you can rely on other people's capital investments in terms of their data center technology. And obviously, as a large company, we've made large investments there. But if you're coming up into the digital technology space, you can acquire those resources relatively cheaply, scale relatively cheaply, reach cross borders relatively cheaply. And it means that small groups of people can have a disproportionate impact. And that's, I think, something that has, has helped us as a company and, and helps the startup community in Australia. And I think countries that are focusing on this making sure that they get their digitization transformation right in general. Thank you. Jim, let me come to you. Um, you were the leading American diplomat in Australia for quite a long time. I think people may not realize that Australia didn't have an American ambassador for about two and a half years from September 2016 until March 2019. So you were effectively the lead diplomat uh, in Australia. Uh, now, you are no longer a diplomat, so you can speak freely. In your time here, and you would have observed a lot of the, and taken part in a lot of the conversations, particularly corporate conversations. Um, what were your impressions of the public and policy conversations and debates about uh, innovation and our future? Was it thriving? Was it lacking? Uh, was it complacent? Um, was the innovation piece largely missing? Uh, what was your broad impression uh, given your time here? Thanks, John. Um, it was really interesting on a couple of fronts. First of all, American companies seem much more enthusiastic about the capabilities of Australia and Australians than Australian companies were. So you see, as Sarah mentioned, Lockheed Martin put its second skunk words of all the world, they looked around and decided on Melbourne. Number two, I think, was Sydney for their choice. Uh, Boeing, as was mentioned, has a big R&D operation. Oracle has a big R&D operation. Microsoft is doing quantum computing with, uh, I think, the University of uh, New South Wales or Sydney. So that's a lot of investment. Where are the Australian companies doing similar type things? Is that a cultural issue? Is it a budget issue? Why, why aren't Australian companies investing in Australian tech and R&D and how to use them? At least I didn't see it. That's first. Second, there seems to be a cultural issue in the US, there's sort of an iron triangle between academia, government, and industry, where people go from one to the other, cross-fertilize and create new companies, new ideas, which are then funded by venture capital and angel investors. Somehow that iron triangle is missing a link in Australia. Whether that's a cultural issue where academics don't tend to jump to industry, or if you work for a big Australian company, you don't tend to jump to private sectors often, I don't know, but that was missing. But the third one, and I think maybe perhaps this is most important, you may remember when uh, Malcolm Turnbull was prime minister, he talked a lot about innovation in the future economy, and he was broadly mocked, uh, derided for forgetting about real Australians and you know, what the future of Australia really was. So if that's sort of the cultural view that innovation is, is trusted or not real somehow, it's going to be harder for the country to get ahead and spend more in this area. Actually, I, I have to say I, I was in the Turnbull government. And as you mentioned, um, innovation for the first year was the key word and suddenly dropped off all of the talking points. Uh, and I agree with you, Jim, it was because it was seen as something that multimillionaires talk about. Um, it wasn't seen as something relevant to the average Australian. But let me use that and, and pose either to Alex, Jared or Sarah. I just wanted to focus a bit more on a cultural issue because the caricature of Australian culture compared to the caricature of American culture is that in America, it's a badge of honour to try and fail and try again. In Australia, it is seen as a badge of shame to have failed even once and you're better off getting or doing something where... Uh, moderate success is guaranteed. Um, now, how much stock do you put in the cultural uh, obstacles that we Australians place in ourselves when it comes to this issue? Uh, happy for any, any, anyone to, to, to go for that. I feel like Sarah may have the best uh, insight on this as someone who has worked across and in both countries. Yeah, so, um... A fact, I mean, the cultural piece is complex. I was on a, a talk yesterday, they were saying culture isn't just culture. There's just so many bits to culture. So I think the try and fail piece is, is, is absolutely uh, a, a challenge that we have. But then the past that is a policy piece. And I know that during COVID, we pushed to change the bankruptcy laws because we thought 
gosh, you know, companies may well go bankrupt in a, in a heartbeat during something like um, COVID. And so there, there were some changes to the bankruptcy laws, but there, there are some policy pieces that, that need to change. The try and fail piece, I think it actually might be more of a, we've got everything so good. Um, and so you just want secure, a secure income um, because you know, we've got great beaches, we've got plenty of food, we've got peace and security. So I think it's more a case of why, why would you try and fail because we've got everything so good. But, you know, COVID has put a you know, massive spanner in that and no one would wish COVID on anyone. But I think it is something that has shaken people into actually, you know what, we need to do things, we need to do things differently. Um, so that cultural piece is, I, I'm, I'm really hopeful that we can maybe change some of that. There's a massive hurdle to change. And innovation by nature, it, you know, needs change. Uh, it's been interesting watching from a government perspective how government employees didn't really want to go to use laptops and digital and working from home and all that. And before you know it, everyone's having to walk from home and now no work from home and now no one wants to come back and work in the office. <laughs> um, I've heard of universities saying that uh, they thought it was going to take them five years to go fully digital and they did it in two weeks. So I think um, there's another cultural piece, which is around change. You just don't want to go for change, but we've all been forced to. So I think um, that's, that's really putting us in a spot where people are ready to do that change. But I would say that you know, we do have a culture of entrepreneurship and innovation. We are, you know, we were born because of people coming across the other side of the world, having a blank canvas and suddenly had to make a world out of something that was so alien to them. And we've been innovating ever since. I think we do have that in us. You think about the, the people who tinker in their garages to, to make things and do things differently from a sports perspective, all the sports innovation that goes on, I think, and obviously there's, there's others, but I think we are innovative. We just don't talk about it very much. I mean, you go to the US, I, I never forget getting, having the newspaper, I forget which one it was in San Francisco outside my hotel room. I picked it up and went, oh my God, there's two startups on the front page. <laughs> then the next day I picked up the paper and oh my God, there's two startups on the front page. Uh, I think that we don't talk about it enough and, and celebrate it enough in Australia. I think we've got some really fantastic um, startups and high-tech companies that we just don't talk about enough. And that brings you to the piece where you talked about Malcolm Turnbull. I think the sad thing, I mean, we were all so excited when Malcolm did all his big innovation science Australia or, or gender policy. You know, we're so excited and we, a lot of us were heavily involved in it. But I think he didn't bring the people along. Uh, you know, the ideas boom great you know for nerds like us woohoo the idea has been but it just doesn't do it for for the people who we need to bring along and that's something that we really we haven't cracked like in israel you go to israel and the mums persuade the kids you know, don't be a doctor don't be a lawyer go and be an entrepreneur <laughs> um you know very similar culture in fact once upon a time i had a green card and lived in, in in the u.s and it was the entrepreneurial culture i loved there why you know, how do we get our mums and dads to get kids to see that this is this is the future. 75% of future high growth jobs need STEM, 65% of them don't exist. Our young people have got to get into STEM and build these new businesses. It's actually really, really key. And, and you know, our relationship with the US and learning from the US how they've done that will be will be really important. But we do have to bring them along. We've got to think differently about how we explain it. There's, a, there's actually a really interesting piece about, um, which I think has been driven by cultural complacency. And in, we've enjoyed a great deal of success economically because of the mining industry. Uh, and the resources will always be there. People have to come here to get them out of the ground. And there's, there's a, been a similar complacency in terms of research and technology around Australia as a nation of early adopters. Um, now, we know when we look at the detail that Australians are able to early adopt technology because it's easy to scale to Australia out of global English-speaking supply chains. Um, that is, there's, that is an, an intrinsic quality. That's something that occurs as a result of you know, decisions made to bring products to Australia. Um, yet it was sort of the part of the gestalt understanding. People just assumed that, you know, innovation would happen here because we were good at technology because our consumers adopted technology early, um, which is about as useful as me saying, you know, I use a spoon, I know how to use a spoon, I buy spoons, so I'm a metallurgist. Um, and that sort of idea that we don't need to do effort because, you know, we have things here that people want and people, the investment will naturally flow is something that I think has really driven uh, this complacency in policy making about driving investment, you know, helping Australia digitize and transform and making sure we're actually on the front foot succeeding and and making the change ourselves rather than just waiting for it to happen to us. Um, so instead of having a culture where you're looking for growth, you're looking for opportunity and looking outwards into the future, you have a situation where uh, governments are often focused on just 
twisting the screws on resource extraction, which means has the perverse effect, the opposite effect, in fact, of making people reconsider the risk of investing here and making sure that, um, you know, looking to the opportunities elsewhere, nations where there is a real focus on, on that economic transformation. You know, Indonesia is a great example. Uh, India is moving into that ballpark as well. And, yeah. and these are nations that, you know, you look at Australia as an Asian nation, as part of the Asia Pacific, and it's those are the nations that we're in competition with. We have to look at this in a relative sense of yeah. are we succeeding? Yeah, that's really interesting, Alex. When I went over to India and I was struck by the, the number of multinationals that exist there, similar to Israel, but they're there for a different reason. But of course, now that reason is changing and it's very much about collaborative R&D, about entrepreneurship, building new businesses. And one of my fears about COVID is that Australia will become very much more self-contained. I mean, there's an advantage in that we might get down to uh, doing a bit more manufacturing, which would be good, uh, and increasing our supply chains. But if we, if we stop seeing the global markets... That's a massive issue. And I think that's one reason why we haven't done so well is because we thought that the market is Australia. Like you go to Israel, there is no market in Israel. So it's, it's naturally global. And that's where the collaboration with the, with the American multinationals will really help because you've got global routes to market. So how do we build much more of that connectivity so that Australia sees those opportunities to get, to get global um, and work together to get our products and services global? Thank you. Uh, before we get to the Australian policy discussion, uh, Jim, I just want to go back to you one more time. And it's really about the intersection of geoeconomics and geopolitics, which I know is something you uh, spent your whole career in. And this draws from questions posed by Glenn Downey and a few others uh, listening now. Now, Google's Eric Schmidt talks about the rise of two internets, one largely based in America or controlled by, run by America and one by China. Um, more broadly, people are increasingly talking about a bifurcated technological or innovative ecosystem, you know, a, a kind of technological or innovative firewall between two camps. Um, is that what the um, world, the, the world of geoeconomics is starting to look like? Uh, and if that's the case, um, I would assume, therefore, that there would be quite a important role for United States and allies um, to, to establish these sorts of um, capa joint capabilities. Um, is that the way you're, you're seeing things going when it comes to the technological innovation space? Well, you know, John, the, uh, the one thing in Washington both sides agree on right now is China's a problem. Um, and however you slice it, uh, 5G is a game changer in that it controls basically the entire economy or has the potential to do so. And to the credit of the Australian government, they pointed this out pretty early and took action pretty early uh, to protect this critical infrastructure. So if you're going to have an infrastructure that's closed to certain parties, uh, and that's you know, basically, the, if you like, the electricity system of the new generation, that will necessarily mean two systems one controlled by presumably uh, the People's Republic of China and one controlled by the West. Uh, and without the trust necessary to trust your critical infrastructure to the other side, I don't know how you can avoid this outcome. Uh, so that's one. Two, Australia as a member of the Five Eyes, as a trusted party, uh, could play a huge role in developing this infrastructure, not just for the United States and Australia, but for the Western world. And I think it's a pretty safe bet that uh, at the recent Osman, uh, this was discussed. Okay, Let, let's get to um, some Australian policy discussion. And it's, uh, it's uh, raised by Chris Legg and quite a few other uh, participants today. Um, Jared, can I quickly get you to, to uh, explain why you emphasize anchor firms to the extent that you do in your report? You know, what, what are anchor firms and what role do they play? And then maybe I'll move to Sarah or Alex. Um, is the formation of anchor firms key to improving some of the indices that Jared has raised in his report? Jared. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, I think in Australia, just like much of the rest of the world, there is a bit of an over emphasis on SMEs or small and medium enterprises. We sort of have this, this notion in, uh, in, around the world 
that innovations happen in someone's garage. Innovations are small little things that someone as a side project decided to develop something like Google, which Google was basically a project uh, done in a garage. But what's important to note is that it didn't start there. Two key things that I think are important for people to understand in terms of, of uh, innovation and commercializing research. Australia's world-renowned research, it's, it's uh, well known for not commercializing it very well. But the two th key things that I think are important are anchor firms, as you said, and uh, venture capital firms. What are anchor firms? Anchor firms are basically large established firms with lots of connections. So like Google, for instance, as Alex mentions, with the uh, former uh, Google employee going to Canva, that employee, that Australian employee was at Google, learned about uh, the practices of a leading and innovative firm, and then brought it to an Australian firm. And that's, that's a skills transfer, that's knowledge transfer. And that's why I think it, those, it's so important for Australia to not uh, overemphasize SMEs, those small firms, because they are important, but you need the anchor firms if you want to be industry leading. And in, in terms of incentives, in terms of policies attracting uh, innovation in Australia, there's probably been too much of an emphasis, in my opinion, on SMEs, and there needs to be more. And obviously, the, the elephant in the room in this is that it's not politically popular, right? It's, it's easy to say, oh, these big tech firms, they don't need anything, they will be fine on their own. It's like, no, they're, they're firms, and they, they need incentives sometimes, just like everyone else. And um, I think the more Australia really tries to attract larger firms um, in, in the same, at the same time that it attracts SMEs, the better for the innovation ecosystem here in Australia. Uh, Sarah, Alex, anchor firms. Is, is perhaps Sarah, in the Queensland government now, is this a conversation that's, uh, that's occurring? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely it is uh, in, in many ways and forms. Um, I'd like to say that, you know, what, what are they, their use? What, how are they, that's not the right word, but how value, how can they add value? And they are, how are they currently adding value? Alex talked about the R&D that, that they're doing here in Australia. That's a massive, massive piece. Commercialization of R&D in Australia has been a challenge and still is a challenge. And so the anchor firms are really key in terms of drawing that R&D out and taking it into their products and services and, and off to market. That's really key. The other one is um, taking SME ideas. So, don't need to throw the baby out of the bathwater. The SMEs are important. What are they? Something like 97% of, of our companies are SMEs. So they are, they are key. But how do you help them work with those anchor firms? Boeing is a classic example. We've got a project with them where they're working with the SMEs in their supply chain, which is now more of a value chain. So they're helping build their capability as well as working with them to take their ideas to market. And that's something that we need to consider. You know, how do we make sure that our SMEs are ready for the anchor firms? because uh, the anchor firms are already important, but they won't reach out to the SMEs unless they're good enough. Our research is fabulous. Our SMEs still need a little, little bit of help. Um, and I've seen that both in the defense sector and the rail supply sector. Um, I think the other one is around entrepreneurs. So Roy Green did a good piece of work, gosh, ages ago now, maybe 10 years ago, that talked about what was needed in our entrepreneur ecosystem. And actually it was skills like how to do your marketing, how to do your HR and your finance. So some classic business skills that you learn in, a, in a, an anchor firm. You just, it just becomes your common breath <laughs> of how you do these things. And so it's important for people to go through a multinational and then jump out and set up their own company so that we can build more companies and more uh, high value add jobs within our ecosystem. The last thing I want to say is when Malcolm Turnbull was doing his piece five years ago, something I suggested was, he should have a club. You know, he should have a really exclusive club where he spends personal time with CEOs of some of these anchor firms. Yeah, maybe that wouldn't do it, but you know, what is it that would, would really attract and help our anchor, anchor firms realize how important they are to our economy? That was just an idea I had about five years ago. But sorry to Sarah or Alex or James, I mean, is there an example of a sector in Australia where anchor firms have played that role? Um, successfully um, that, that, that you describe? Oh, look, I think my, the Boeing example that I gave, and Alex can talk to his, his examples and the work that they're doing, but because I know they're doing a lot of great work in, in this, uh, Google's doing some fabulous work building our ecosystems. But, you know, Boeing is doing, is doing that uh, in Queensland in a very important way. BHP, for instance, they're running a program where they're actually trying to transform education 
So I'm on some committee where we're looking at how do we change TAFE universities, get some micro-credentials out around autonomous vehicles. Uh, so I think there are companies that are, that are starting to do that and some that have been doing it for quite some time. I just want to quickly add, if I can, Boeing's largest footprint outside, investment footprint outside of America is Australia. And why is that? It's because they, they trust Australia. Australia has, has great aviation uh, capacity in both skills, but also in the environment. But also, Australia is part of the Five Eyes Intelligence Agreement. Australia has so many tailwinds going for it. And that leads to firms with really sensitive IP, really sensitive innovations to come to Australia. And what I want my report to hopefully do is say, these firms are already here. You need more of them. You need more investment from them, and you need more like them. Just, just to add on to that, uh, you know, cloud computing is the future of computing. Secure cloud is a big subset of that. Uh, Australia is one of the five eyes, clearly is in the position that they can add value to security and operability and interoperability of cloud computing. Huge opportunity. I think it's clear from the makeup of the ASX that when it comes, if when you look at any industry that involves a lot of high technology, that it is foreign firms that are coming into the market that actually um, make up most of the industry. You know, information technology, for example, we now have some great Australian firms, be they the Atlassians of Canvas of the world, the Afterpays, Safety Culture. Many of these Australian firms are now coming up through the ecosystem, but starting that ecosystem with the big American firms in the same way that there is in, in defence, some advanced manufacturing, previously in automotive manufacturing. Um, but one thing that we've been missed, we've missed talking about, and one thing I think is hugely important for Australia's economic development is the large local firms being uh, in a position where they can invest in this technology. Most Australians through their workplace experience will, will work in one of these larger Australian firms for you know, banking industry, financial, uh, retail, and these are the firms where you know, I'd love to see the government look at encouraging investment. And this will affect the broader ecosystem, but the vast majority of uh, skills transfer is going to happen when these large Australian companies see the, the priority the government is putting on digital transformation and really start to invest in the area because we are, you know, we have fallen well behind the rest of the developed world when it comes to investment in digital technology, which is a, a stage of economic transformation and is really a huge risk for the Australian economy. Um, and what we're hearing from the boards of these large Australian companies is that why would we invest now? We have no idea if six months down the track there's going to be some change that makes all this investment valid. So we really need to see some focus and priority from the government in making sure that we are, A, recognise the problem that Australia has fallen well behind the developed world when it comes to investment in, in technology, and B, focus on how we can actually improve that. What is the story there? Alex, let me go on from that. It's, and it draws from a question from Don Scott Chemis. Um, you know, Google already has a sizable footprint in Australia, but what would you like to see um, that would encourage Google and other companies like you uh, to invest a lot more in R&D? What, you know, what are the couple, is it, is it tax policy, regulatory policy? Is it something, something different to that? What, what is it that you'd like to see? I think fundamentally a return to good governance when it comes to policymaking and technology. We've seen a lot over the past few years of, you know, policy made and legislated inside of a week with no response from industry. We have, we're seeing situations where, for example, in the latest, um, published code being put forward by the ACCC where they arbitrators are required to consider all the value brought by the people on the other side of the equation and completely ignore any value that's provided by platforms to Australia um, or the publishers, for example. And so in a lot of these cases, you look at the, the policies and the processes that go into making them and um, clearly they're, they're leading to, you know, problematic outcomes from even basic standards of basic fairness. But you look at this situation and say, what is the, we see all of this negative stuff happening. Um, it's often happening in a way that is suboptimal and ends up in, in you know, poor outcomes that will disincentivize investment. How do we actually make sure that the, the Australian government gets back to a sound policymaking process? You know, we have no problem with paying our fair share of tax here. We're a top 100 taxpayer in Australia. Um, we would love to be able to invest more here, but even if you dig into the little details around policy areas, you find areas of risk that might be unexpected. For example, you can't do open source AI research and development in Australia because there's no fair use provision in copyright law. You, you would do that overseas in nations like Japan that has a data use exemption, Singapore, 
uh, Israel or the US, which have fair use exemptions. And you find these little nuggets around a variety of policy areas where Australia just hasn't modernized its its legislative framework. And when you combine that with a very ad hoc um, and you know poorly thought, thought through and certainly ending up in, in suboptimal outcomes in regulatory processes, you start to wonder, you know, how do we think about our business when and our investments for the future here when they might be turned on their head in six months and we may get no real opportunity to actually uh, comment on that or our thoughts and and concerns may not even be listened to so i think that's where we are at in terms of our view of the country at the moment where where we would see an advantage is just to a return to uh, you know sound policy making that has a future focus and a real expert view in terms of how the economy and the market is functioning. And I think that's what, what a lot of this comes down to, that Australia hasn't got a high level of technological expertise in terms of the decision and policymaker level. And we really need to make sure that we, you know, we lean in as a company and the research community leans in, uh, the local companies lean in to actually bridging that gap between the understanding of how this digitization process and the economy works and the decisions that are being made. Uh let me bring conversation back to you, Sarah, and also you, Jim, because you, you know Australia pretty well now. Sarah, you said something um, earlier, which I think is entirely true, which was that people like you were very excited by Malcolm Turnbull's use of the word innovation and agility and so on and opportunities, but he didn't bring people with him. Um, so the question I would pose to you, Sarah, and perhaps Jim as well, if you want to chip in, is how, I know it's not just a matter of presentation, but how do you present, um, how do you return that focus to the importance of innovation in a political and public conversation that brings people along with you and such that it's not seen as some sort of elite thing that people with PhDs actually talk about? Just jump in here and say, I'll let, if Jim can answer first, because he has a hard stop at 11. Uh, thanks. Uh, it, it's really interesting because here in Singapore and elsewhere in Southeast Asia, governments are using COVID sort of as Sarah indicated as, all right, we have a paradigm shift coming. We need to be ready for a new real where trade in goods is maybe more difficult. We need to invest in the next technologies. So we're working with a lot of clients in Singapore, Indonesia, on how to access government programs that help individuals skill up, find jobs in new growth sectors, help these companies go abroad to find suppliers and technology. Uh, it's really a lot of ferment and almost excitement as the Singapore uh, Minister of, of Trade just said the other day, look, those jobs are gone and probably aren't coming back. We as Singapore Inc. have to figure out what comes next. Let's work together. I'm not hearing that in Australia. I, I fear that it's still the attitude that, that Malcolm faced of there's no lead issue. And, and Sarah, when, when I go to you, um, perhaps if you have a view uh, additionally as to whether a recession might change mindsets, I, I hate to put it like that, but 28 years of economic growth does do something uh, to one's psychology. Yeah. So. I think the mantra that I'm pushing at the moment is jobs for today, jobs for tomorrow, um, because it is about jobs. You talk about a recession, what's a recession? It means people are out of work. Um, so I think we need to think about innovation in, in, in the terms of jobs. And part of that is actually getting into people's shoes. You know, it's so easy for me as a you know, highly educated, globally experienced, techie nerd to go, wow, this is so exciting. I can't wait to see IoT take over the world but it's frightening um, for people. So I think uh, getting into people's shoes, understanding where they're coming from, speaking about jobs and the, what that means for them. Obviously the, it's a whole pipeline. So encouraging kids to see that the future for them and the future for them is, you know, basically if you don't get into this, we won't have any jobs. Um, but also the parents and making sure that's a key piece is making sure the parents understand that, you know, your kids can't go and be a, a lawyer and they'll have a job for life. It's just not going to be like that. Uh, but also, it's not frightening. You know, this is all possible. We can do this. We are humans. Humans do this. So we can do it. Um, removing that fear is really important. I think the other piece is 
just showing that the, some of the skills that we have today will be valuable for the future. They're just packaged a bit differently. I think we all think we're going to lose our jobs completely and we'll all be totally useless for the future, but, but we're not. You know, we, we actually have some skills now that we can transfer. So, and that's all part of that removing the fear piece. So it's firstly, you know, remove the fear. Secondly, get them excited about, you can build these jobs. You're a human, humans do this. We can build these jobs and we can build them together. Well, uh, my alarm has gone off and I know we have a hard stop at 11, so we have run out of time, uh, unfortunately. Uh, look, I want to thank my panellists um, for, for making it such a stimulating conversation. I wish you could have gone for longer. Uh, I really want to thank Jared for his report, which I've read um, and which will come out next Thursday. Uh, I want to thank my colleagues at the United States Studies Centre uh, who make these webinars work. Uh, Janine, Mari, Taylor and Zoe in particular. A reminder that the next United States Studies Centre webinar is on Tuesday next week, the 18th of August. Uh, it is part of our Election Watch 2020 series on the perils of pre-election polling, uh, extremely topical right now. Uh, and a recording of today's session will be available on the US, USSC website shortly. Uh, so thank you very much to my panellists and thank you to those who have logged on.